We are FBC Summit, leading everyday people to love Jesus and make Him known. Thank you so much for joining us today. Here's our pastor, Dr. Larry LeBlanc. If you have your Bibles, join me again in turning to the book of Exodus. Exodus chapter 17 this morning, verses 1 through 7. We'll continue our journey together through the life of Moses. We've been studying over the past several months, and we'll continue to study throughout the rest of the summer this incredible life and the imprint that it made on all of history, but certainly our understanding of not only Moses' history, but the story of the Israelites and how that makes a tremendous difference to both you and I in our own individual lives. Friends, I've got to tell you, I'll be honest with you, there are people in my life, because we live in the world, that get on my nerves. But the person that gets on my nerves worse than anybody I know is the guy standing behind the pulpit here. And some of that is because of looking over a course of life and patterns in life. And, and I think we're directed to texts like this because it helps us to understand that this is an age-old problem. That patterns and sins and lifestyles and habits tend to repeat themselves over and over and over again. We've been studying the nation of Israel and Moses, and, and you'll remember just from our time together that they had, had seen the plagues, and then they had seen the parting of the Red Sea, and then they had seen the pillar of fire, and then they had seen the purification at Marah, and then they had seen the provision of manna, and they had seen all of these things over and over and over again. And even if you haven't been here for every Sunday, you probably can guess the answer to this. At, over the course of the brief history of Israel that we've had the privilege of studying together, how has their response been to each of those events? Have they hit it out of the park spiritually? Have they done a fantastic job? Should they be applauded for the way that they have responded? Or by and large, could we honestly say that so far that the circumstances have changed, but the sin has remained the same? The attitudes have remained the same. The failure has remained the same. And so the title this morning is Over and Over, because sometimes if we're not careful, we will absolutely find ourselves in a place of insanity because we will do the same things over and over and over and what? Expect different results or expect something different to happen. But for some of us, if we are going to break the destructive patterns in our life, it's going to come because we are honest, number one, about what's taking place in our life. We identify it, we repent of it, and then we ask the Lord to help change our hearts and our minds so that as we are tested and as we are tried, we respond differently, and it's not just the same song in a different verse. When we find ourselves in Exodus chapter 17, your big idea this morning is simply this to see and change the destructive patterns in your life. To see and change the destructive patterns in your life. Now as we read this together, I want you to remember the brief history. In fact, as we read this together, you're going to be reminded of many of the attitudes that Israel has displayed thus far. And probably if you were just reading the story all at one time, you'd find yourself wanting Israel to somehow have a shining moment and maybe as you read this, you think this is going to be it. Spoiler alert, this is not going to be a shining moment. Stand with me and let's discover that together. Exodus chapter 17, we begin in verse 1 today. The whole Israelite community set out from the desert of sin, traveling from place to place as the Lord commanded, and they camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. 
So they quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses replied, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you put the Lord to the test? But the people were thirsty for water there, and they grumbled against Moses. And they said, Why did you bring us up out of Egypt to make us and our children and livestock die of thirst? Verse 4, Then Moses cried out to the Lord, What am I to do with these people? They're almost ready to stone me. And the Lord answered Moses, Walk on ahead of the people and take with you some of the elders of Israel and take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will stand there before you by the rock of Horeb. Strike the rock and water will come out of it for the people to drink. So Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel and he called the place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, Is the Lord among us or not? Lord, teach us today by the power of your Holy Spirit to be honest enough to see and change the destructive patterns in our life. Help us to see how that we may do that because, Lord, our life's purpose is to do what we sang this morning, to glorify you. So, Lord, I pray that we would behold our God and recognize that as we behold you, that, Lord, you are deserving of our faith, of our belief. And, Lord, there has never been a time where you could not provide and provide supernaturally. Lord, we believe. Help us to overcome our unbelief. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you please be seated? If you are going to see and change the destructive patterns in your life, there are three things that are non-negotiable that have to happen. And the first one of them is this. You have to understand the purpose of God's test. You have to understand the purpose of God's test. They get to this place. Your water is a continuing theme throughout Exodus. You'll remember that during the plagues that water was what was turned into blood. And then as they're crossing, they get to the Red Sea, water, and it has to be parted. Then the water comes back together. And then they get to where Meribah, and the water is bitter, and they have to throw in the wood, and the water becomes sweet. And now they've journeyed again, and they found themselves at another place in the middle of the desert, and there's no water again. And this continual theme of water that the Lord continually provides, continually parts, continually gives, we ought to be at a place where we wouldn't have to title this text over and over. They, they ought to have seen by now that the Lord was going to take care of them, that the Lord was going to provide, that they did not have to stress out, that they did not have to have all of this anxiety, that they certainly didn't have to quarrel with the Lord and with Moses. They didn't have to get to a point where things were so rough that now the very man who had by God's appointment led them out of Egypt is legitimately worried that they're going to murder him. I don't know if you caught that. But when he prayed to God, he said, these people are ready to stone me. And their quarrel was not just with Moses. Their quarrel was with God because their heart problem, their core problem, was not a lack of water. Their core problem was not even leadership. Their core problem was unbelief. Their core problem was a lack of faith. Now, I'll challenge you as we delve in this together to be honest enough about what it is that you're dealing with today. And there are a lot of people that are listening today, and a lot of you are dealing with hundreds of different things. So I realize that we can't lump all of those into one pile, but I think what we can do is no matter what it is that you're going through, no matter what issue you're dealing with, no matter what destructive pattern you may be seeing over and over again, I want you to ask yourself this question. Is the fundamental problem that I am having because of a lack of faith? 
is the fundamental underlying reason that this is a struggle for me because of unbelief. Now, we get to really the highlight of the whole passage, or I guess I should say the low light of the whole passage when we get all the way to the end of what we read together. Look at verse 7 for me for just a moment before we go any further and look at the question that they ask. This is the most unfaithful, this is the most doubtful, this is the most heretical question that I believe that could have been asked. It's the last thing we read together. Is the Lord among us or not? Is God even here? Did God even lead us here? We should have stayed in the we should have stayed in Egypt. At least we had something to drink. But you've brought us out here to kill the animals, to kill our children, and to kill us. Is God even among us? So I would ask the question before we go any further, here, here before we try to understand the testing of God, I, I want to ask this of Israel and then let's try to think about it for just a moment in our own lives. What more would God have to do in your life to prove that he is among you? What more would God have to show you? What more would God have to do? And I truly believe that if we have a heart that is a heart of stone, what Ezekiel calls it, if we had a, have a heart of stone that is unreceptive to the things of God, that we are not seeing the things of God, that our minds aren't open to the things of God, that our heart isn't open to the things of God, then we can become so calloused that our spiritual eyesight is so covered in cataracts that even when God is moving, you either don't see it or you don't accept it. And so because of that, no matter what God does, we don't seem to notice. When every one of you that is listening is a walking, talking testimony to the power and grace and mercy of the Almighty, what more would God have to do for you to prove that he is among you? But you see, friends, when we understand the test of God, I think it really helps us. You see, these people have made up a crazy scenario that Moses is out to kill them. Now, if you've read the text so far, you know how ridiculous that is. But let's understand what sin does to any life. Once you have given yourself over to a lack of faith and unbelief and a sinful lifestyle, it in turn will make you illogical. It will make you irrational. It will take over your mind. Romans 1 makes that very clear about the destructive patterns that will overtake in your life. And so the point here is when you read it, you're going, that is the craziest thing I've ever heard in my life. That now they're accusing Moses of wanting to murder them and their children and their livestock. It is because sin, yes, it affects your relationship with God, but it affects your heart, it affects your mind, it affects your attitude, it affects your outlook, it affects your perspective, it affects everything about you. So it's not just the waters at Meribah that were poisoned. It's the souls and the the minds of the very people at this point who ought to have understood obviously that God was at work and that God was moving. So why is it that it seems like God is continually bringing these people to a place of test? Remember, they wondered how they were going to eat, and he provided them the manna, and he provided them the quail. They wondered how they were going to drink. And he provided them again at Meribah. He sweetened the water. They wondered how they were going to cross the Red Sea, parted it, how they were going to get out of Egypt. But so far in this story, over and over and over again, we've yet to see a response of faithfulness. 
And so what we're beginning to see is, is that yes, God will bring you to a place of testing, but if you don't pass the test, guess what? You're going to have another exam. That God is going to continue to test you because some of you, and, and listen to me, I love you, I, listen to me, I love you, but you are, the, are hard-headed and stubborn and you don't listen and we don't do what we're told and we don't learn from our mistakes. And so God says, well, let me run it back again. Let's see if we can do it again. So what you're reading about, these tests didn't have to happen like they did, but the people obviously are telling God, we haven't learned enough that we doubt whether or not you're even among us or not. So understanding the purpose of this test, but I think there's confusion on how God tests people. And I can understand that because there is an extreme difference between a temptation and a test. I want you to know that. There is a difference between a temptation and a test. Biblically, when we understand that, one of them is of God and the other is of Satan. Now, that's a big difference. So, oftentimes, we need to be very clear in our understanding and asking the Lord for discernment on whether we are being tempted or whether we are being tested. Why does God test? Why would God want to test us? Several weeks ago, just in case you don't remember, we talked about that God doesn't test you so he can figure out your character, so he can figure out your heart. God already knows your heart. God tests you so that he can reveal your heart to you. That's why we're tested. But the reason that we're tested is so that it becomes blatantly obvious in our areas of faithlessness and unbelief so that when we see that, we recognize how far we have to go. So God continually tests so that we're able to see the response. The problem is when we're spiritually dead, when we're not paying attention, when we don't see the things that are going on around us, how do we respond to those tests? Not only do we fail them, but we haven't even noticed that we were having a test. Right? And so we ha it has to come up again, and it has to come up again, and it has to come up again. So when we talk about Satan tempting, Satan tempts to bring the worst out of you, right? He wants you to fall. He wants to destroy you. So Satan does bring temptation. God brings tests. There will be things in your life right now that are happening that are temptations, they are from Satan, they are from your flesh, they are from the world, and they are tempting you to sin. God, in his holiness, in his righteousness, in his purity, he never tempts to sin. God does test you and takes you to the crucible, will allow you into the fire, not because he wants you to fall, but because he wants to expose the places that you need to grow so that you can love him and trust him and know him more. There is a difference in a test and a temptation. Number two. Number two. Know how to respond when you are tested. Know how to respond when you are tested. Watch what Moses does. Moses is an old man at this point, and he's made a lot of mistakes, and he's going to make a couple of more. But I love what we see here out of Moses. And this is an area that as I've studied this text this week that I have got to tell you. One of the hardest things in the world about preaching is that I couldn't keep doing this if I weren't honest with, with you about the places that when the text absolutely busts me between the eyes, 
that I have struggled with. I have to get up there Sunday and tell these people that they need to change some things, but before I tell them that, I need to take my medicine, and sometimes it comes as a mouthful. And I tried to put myself in the shoes of how I would respond if you had a mutiny on your hands. They're accusing you of trying to murder them, murder their children, murder their livestock, and you're so scared you think that the people that you've been called to lead are going to kill you, murder you, stone you. I would fully expect Moses, if he's in the flesh at all at this moment, to lash out. I'm talking about throw a fit on these people. I am sick of you. I'm sick of your attitude. I'm sick of leading you. You're a horrible group of people. You're ungrateful. You're unappreciative. You're sorry. Some of you are dumb. Obviously, looking at you, you're not going to get anywhere. You don't deserve to go to a promised land. I should have left you in Egypt. I should have stayed with my wife out in the desert and kept herding goats, and I should have never left there because if I'd have known them what I know now about how wicked you are and how terrible you were going to be to lead, I'd have never taken one step toward Egypt and I'd have certainly never taken one step out. I don't know why it is that you won't learn, but obviously you are as stubborn as a mule and I don't know who's going to lead you or where you're going to go, but I can tell you who it's not going to be. I've thought about this. I, I've thought about this. Like, How would you respond to this? He's sick of it. He's got to be sick of these people. But instead of engaging with them, what does Moses do? Watch this. Verse 4. Then Moses cried out to the Lord. What am I supposed to do with these people? They're ready to stone me. Here's where I told you I'm convicted. It's not that I don't pray. It's that I need to make prayer my knee-jerk reaction. Because often my first reaction is towards the person or the circumstance or the situation. Well, let me tell them something. Let me make this right. Let me figure this out. Let me work this out. And then after that hasn't worked, then I pray. And that's unacceptable. For Moses, he said, I, I can't do anything here. I'm going to God first. And, and that's how you respond. That's how you respond. That's a wise move. And so the question for all of us is when trouble is at your door, whatever that may be, maybe it's not leadership crises, maybe it's just general life problems. What is your knee-jerk reaction? What is the first thing that you do? I can guarantee you this. You are not going to be able to put up with people if you don't spend time with God. What was the first thing I asked you after I asked you to take your Bibles and turn to Exodus 17? Do you have anybody in your life that annoys you? You know what? People are annoying. They just are. People are crazy. People are sin-filled. People don't make sense. People are unreasonable. People are illogical. And if you spend the rest of your life mad that people are acting like people are going to act, then you're going to have a rough time because that's people. So what you've got to do is not control their responses. You've got to control your response, and the first response ought to always be to go to God. 
to go to God, and that's what Moses does here. Number three, number three. There is still a rock. There is still a rock through which living water flows. And the Lord answered Moses. I think I'm obviously more impressed with the Lord's response all through this than I have been with even Moses' response. I don't know why God, at this point, hasn't just wiped them out, killed them all, one fell swoop. There was nothing special about Israel other than that they were chosen by God. God didn't have to be this patient or this merciful or this graceful. And really, it's a, a prefigurement of everything that we understand about the grace of God. Because you, it, 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 at this point, you don't even see God taking the time for a rebuke. He immediately just tells Moses, take some of the elders and go strike the rock, and water's going to come out of it. Now, we could spend a lot of time, I don't know that it's necessary, talking about striking the rock. But he's using the staff to strike the rock. Simple thing is, water doesn't come out of rocks. That's a miracle. So he strikes the rock using the same staff that he's done all of these other miracles with. But he doesn't allow all the people to see it. He only takes the elders. I have to imagine at this point in the people's life that they were limited from seeing that, but God wanted to authenticate this miracle and allowed the elders to see it so that the elders would be able to see that Moses not only did have authority, but it was granted by God, and he would continue to confirm that. The water flows out, and the people obviously now at this point are allowed to drink. In the New Testament, this passage is referred to frequently. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 and 4, it says, for they, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. John 7, 37 and 38. On the last and greatest day of the feast, Jesus stood and said in a loud voice, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, streams of living water will flow from within him. Now, if you don't think that that is directly a reference to this, let me give you a little bit of background in John chapter 7. Jesus is at the Feast of Tabernacles, and he's teaching in the temple, and he is inviting people to believe. The backdrop while he is teaching is a ritual of a feast commemorating God's provision in the wilderness with the Israelites and anticipating the Messianic age to come. So while they're at this Feast of Tabernacles, they're commemorating this exact event, God taking care of people in the desert in Israel. And they are looking forward to the Messianic age. Now, what is the Messianic age? That's when Jesus was born. That's when Jesus, he is the Messiah, so he's ushered in the Messianic age. So there's a little bit of irony in John chapter 7 because the people are celebrating a festival looking towards the Messiah coming while they're rejecting the Messiah who's at the very festival. That's an odd course of events. And so Jesus is inviting them to come. He's inviting them to drink of this living water. You'll remember John chapter 4. That's what he told the woman at the well, that she could drink from the living water. Well, the high priest would draw water from the pool of Siloam, and he would carry it back to the temple, and the trumpet would be blown three times, and the water would be taken and dumped out as an offering. It was dumped out as an offering because it symbolized the water that God provided in the wilderness being poured out for the people. 
And so when Jesus begins to tell them about a living water, he's making the same point that he made in John chapter 4, that there is a rock, that we set our feet upon what? The rock that there is a foundation upon which we plant our feet and it does not shift like sand, but it is the rock of Jesus Christ and from that rock flows water. But that water is not just an oasis in the desert, that that water is a water that is continually and eternally applied to hearts so that it always, always, always and forever will quench the deepest thirst of everyone who partakes of it. Now, Israel was dense then. Israel was dense in the first century. They don't understand the provision that God is giving them then, and they certainly don't understand it in the person of the Messiah who stands before them. I don't know what it would be like. I cannot imagine to be stuck out in the ocean on a raft. Some of you have read books or seen movies where people have been stuck out on a life raft. They're hundreds if not thousands of miles from shore they're stuck people don't that they have no idea where they are they're out there for days or even weeks and you're surrounded by water but you're about to dehydrate and die why i think most of you know this but you can't drink salt water i guess you can but it actually has the opposite effect of hydration because of the salt content in the water, it'll actually cause you to die faster. It'll dry you out faster. So you're surrounded by the very resource you need, but there is poison in it, essentially, that it will kill you if you drink it. So what you essentially have is a well that's polluted. And I want you to know that what most people are drinking from is a polluted well. And so we keep going and keep going and keep going looking for water that's going to come out of a different rock that somehow this water, this is going to satisfy this relationship, this addiction, this entertainment, this sin, this emptiness. And the whole time Jesus stands as he did in Matthew chapter 7 and says, I'm trying to give you living water that comes out of the rock. I am the rock. I am the alpha. I am the mega. I'm the beginning. I am the end. I am the source of life. They're walking by the Savior of the world and saying, no, I don't know that need to go to the mountain at Mount Calvary. I don't need that. If we don't drink of this living water, we're bound for a diseased understanding of who we are, why we're here, and where we're going. I want you to listen to me. Listen to what the Bible says in the very last chapter. Revelation chapter 22, verse 17. And let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who wishes take the water of life without cost. We have a thirsty world. And some of you are thirsty individuals. But friends, what I want you to know is the height of craziness is for people to see destructive patterns in their life and ignore them. For you not to do a thing in the world about it. When today, now you can. That you'd understand the purpose of why God might be testing you. That you know how to respond and you go to him when you are being tested. And that you would understand that there is still a rock from which living water flows.